Hello, this is Red Femme. You're here with Hannah and Jen. Red Femme is available on Apple, Spotify, and Patreon, where our bonus episodes are every single week. So today we're going to be talking about right-wing women and how gender non-conforming they are. This episode theme was thought of by Hannah, who has a few things to say. Yeah, it just really strikes me again and again and again and again just how much more gender non-conforming. And and when I say gender non-conforming, I don't mean in terms of hairstyles and clothing and aesthetics and that sort of thing. I mean in terms of conforming to the social roles um, expected of women, like the actual definition of it. How much more gender non-conforming right-wing women often are And what led me to think about this first was Lauren Southern. I remember Lauren Southern in like 2011, 2012, 2013, showing up to protest with like her two braids and like her big combat boots. And like these, she's flanked by these big men. She's got this huge camera equipment and she's like getting up in people's faces and asking all these confrontational questions I remember thinking, oh, God, what a strong woman, much stronger than I ever could be. You know, there's all these kinds of examples of women who um, have right-wing politics that are not feminine in any particular way other than how they look. Often they're very beautiful women who put a lot of work into how they look. But in this way alone, only are they gender-conforming. It's really quite startling the difference, career women, um, in high-flying careers in male-dominated industries, in the media, um, while pretending to be anti-feminist and living none of those values in their own lives. And it makes me thoughtful about Andrea Dworkin's um, analysis of this in right-wing women, whereas the whole thing operates on this... Um, theory or this idea of exception. So when they talk about women and being anti-feminist or anything to do with sexual politics, they mean everyone but me. Because the idea is if I will be spared from these expectations by being like the most behaved or the most beautiful or the most whatever. I also think that many more women vote Democrat, many more men vote Republican, many men lie about this in the United States. Many men lie about being Republican to get with women. There's something quite masculine in a traditional sense to go on television and be like, fuck those immigrants. They shouldn't come here. They shouldn't, you know, it's not loving. It's not nurturing. It's not all these things that we associate with femininity. And really right, the being right wing and specifically being far right or being a fascist even, it's very much about fathers and the rule of the father and authority and all of those sorts of things, all these things that are quite masculine, whereas often being liberal is about being kind and compassionate and self-sacrificial and all of those sorts of things. So there's a real, um, there's a real masculine tendency among these right-wing women media commentators. Just to make potentially a contradictory point though, I think that Lauren Southern is right wing from what she said because her father is right wing and she adopted his ideas. So in this way, those women are submissive. They'll often be submissive to a man. 
say their father or their father's ideas or whatever and in that respect they're not gender non-conforming at all that can sometimes be the case so it looks like they're very you know things that are not associated with femininity but it will be in service to a man but I, I just wanted to make that point about Lauren Southern and how I think that I still see quite a lot of right-wing women say some of the Quillette women who will kind of adopt the politics and ideology of their boyfriends or husbands who I don't think are non-conforming. However, it is true that a lot of them who espouse this absolute conformity to gender roles are often very surprisingly and seemingly without flinching, without explaining it, doing the total opposite. And my example for that this week would be Candace Owens and this clip that has come out of her speaking at an event about eight months, maybe nine months pregnant, right? I mean, she's huge at the moment. And she was, you know, walking around on this stage with a microphone speaking in front of thousands of people. And she said, like, what, you know, no one consulted me about feminism. Like, what is this like wanting to work a nine to five? I don't want to do that. I want to be, and then she just said this like cliche and she didn't even seem like she meant it. She's really said it almost in like a bit of a fake voice. And she just said, you know, I want to be at home, barefoot, pregnant in the kitchen, baking. And it was like, Candace, like, first of all, she didn't even say it in a way that was convincing. She didn't even say it like she meant it. She, it seemed like a bit or like a performance. But I just wanted to be like, look heavily, nine-month pregnant woman with like a belly the size of like a small elephant. Why are you here then? Why are you walking around on stage in front of thousands of people when you could be at home? Most pregnant women, just before they give birth, aren't doing this. I just thought like how incredible that she's even said, she doesn't even just say like, you know, don't take me as an example, but she says, this is what I want. This is what I aspire to. And whenever they say this, I just want to say, okay, go on then. Like, why aren't you then? Why do you have a podcast? Why do you work full time for the Daily Wire? Why do you do media events all the way up until you literally give birth? This is just not what actually most women are willing to do. Who who do gen clearly do genuinely prefer to be at home more than you because they're at home more than you, right? Like the proof is in the pudding. And I kind of find it incredible. And I, I think what it is for me is that thing of exactly what you said about exceptionalism and Dworkin, you know, explains that really well. The same way a lot of right-wing women will defend men in public saying like, oh no, I've, you know, my sex with men has been the best ever. I just don't recognize what any women say when they say that like men don't make an effort in bed. And this sort of idea that the world, that other women have experienced with men just hasn't touched them and that we just have to like suspend reality and be like this woman seems to have been in a parallel universe and what we're saying just doesn't resonate with her it's a similar kind of thing of just denial and then assuming that you'll be the exception to to the rule or, or and stating that you are a lot of the time somehow magically all the time but the other woman this week that i noticed 
was Catherine Burble Singh, who for people outside the UK might not know who she is, but she has this reputation as Britain's strictest headmistress. And she kind of got famous after starting a blog called like Miss Snuffy. That's what she calls herself on Twitter as well. It's this cutesy, sentimental thing, Miss Snuffy. Uh, and it was an anonymous blog at first. And it was her kind of as a traditionalist teacher decrying modern education. And then she spoke at the Conservative Party conference about you know, the virtues of traditional education. And she now runs her own school in northwest London. The reason she came to my attention this week is that there is a Marks and Spencer's Christmas advert that, so for, again, people outside the UK, Marks and Spencer's every year do a kind of big budget Christmas advert and people sort of wait for it to come out on TV. And they're often very well done. They're often sometimes quite moving, actually, in the way that they'll have a nice message and it's all sort of Christmassy and blah blah and it really taps into this kind of British sentimentality that we that we have and this year it's a bunch of women who I think are meant to be kind of mothers or female relatives at Christmas and they are doing all of the Christmas organizing which overwhelmingly is what women do it's usually done by women so there's you know a woman in the kitchen a woman writing out loads of Christmas cards and the message of the advert is do kind of what's right for you. So it says only do what you want. So at Christmas, don't just be a servant for other people, but, you know, just do the festivities that you like because the burden is fully on women. I've even had men kind of notice this and say, oh, at Christmas, it's like all the female relatives are just serving us. Like they bring in the food, they take away the plates they do all the washing up, they wrap all the presents, they organize. And, and, you know, this is women are in charge of social reproduction and things like religious or cultural festivities are a part of that. Anyway, so in the Marks and Spencer advert, eventually these women do things like set fire to the cards that they're writing out, this huge pile of cards on this table and the messages to kind of that the burden is not completely on you and you should just really do the amount of domestic labor that you're happy with. Anyway, <laughs> she wrote, Catherine Burble Singh wrote a complaint to Marks and Spencer's, a letter of complaint, and then she shared it on Twitter. And I'll read it now because I found it so shocking. <laughs> and it just shows how over the top. I mean, this is a thing that I do take you know, I'm not against traditional education in many ways. And I think there's some conservative people with sensible ideas. But this sort of overreaction is just so hyperbolic and bizarre. And I just thought, what are you reading into this? This is so strange. So anyway, she says, Dear Marks and Spencers, I feel compelled to write to you to express my deep disappointment and outrage at your Christmas advert for 2023. You have a duty as our national department store to keep the spirit of Christmas alive for the sake of our children. When our nation is on its knees, trying to keep our spirits high for what we can all achieve together, this is not the time for you to encourage people to ignore the inspirational spirit of Christmas. So first of all, she's writing this like it's during the Blitz, like it's World War II right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and we're all having to pull together or something. I mean, what there is is a cost of living crisis, Catherine, caused in part by the government that you go to the conference of every year. Anyway, this is not the time for you to encourage people to ignore the inspirational spirit of Christmas as self-sacrifice, who's women's, gratitude, who's women's, giving one's time and finances, who's women's, to help one's fellow man of children's laughter, of magical tales of Father Christmas, of kindness and beauty, who's women's, and instead tell us to do whatever we want for ourselves. <laughs> I run an inner city school in London where we try hard to instill values of decency daily in our children. When, By the way, at this school, kids are not allowed to speak to each other in the corridor. So actually what they're trying to instill is some quite oppressive behavioral practices, if you ask me. And social retardation in all likelihood. Well, yeah, not being able to socially develop because you've not managed to sort of have conflicts, learn how to sort conflicts out. Um, yeah, develop your social skills, essentially. I mean, do any of these children become friends? Do any of them get their first boyfriend or girlfriend at this school? It's not like they have a sort of 3 p.m. when they all knock off from school, sort of two hours of like an after school youth club where they do all of that, like, just the amount of talking that I did as a teenager with friends, the amount of figuring out things that I did, the amount of sort of testing the waters of a new experience. What, good? Well, when I was in school, my friends were, we would sit in this corridor and just scream at each other about politics. And we were known like school-wide as the people who scream about politics at each other. And it's like part of the reason I am the person I am today. I definitely learned more from that experience that I did in biology 11 or whatever I was doing. So I'll carry on with the letter. Uh, da, da, da. I run an inner city school in London where we try hard to instill values of decency daily in our children. When Marks and Spencers puts two fingers up to these values, it makes our lives as teachers more difficult and it stifles social mobility and happiness for our children, in particular the disadvantaged. So saying to women, only do the domestic labour that you're happy with doing and the activities and organise the activities and all of this stuff you have to do, send out loads of Christmas cards, put up decorations, start the preparations for cooking several days before Christmas, make sure that everyone has a present, make sure that you know when people are coming around, get in the food that you know people want in terms of like the allergies, the vegans, the whatever. Um, I was about to say halal, that's probably not always happening at Christmas. Um, all of the different things, right, that women have to do and have to contend with, basically, like, even just the mental burden of having to remember, like, what, like, you're catering for everyone, right? You're catering sometimes for, like, 15 people coming round and then serving them a three-course meal. Uh, Ebenezer Scrooge says, I will honour Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. So should we all. Scrooge teaches us the value of charity and generosity of spirit. Again, women, you need to be generous and charitable. On that fateful night, 
he learns that selfishness is not what Christmas is about. Rather than teach our children to build a chain to weigh them down for eternity, you should be showing us the way and heartening adverts celebrating the values which Scourge comes to embody. How can you do this to our country at this time? Shame on you. May God or Allah or Vishnu take pity on you. I look to the heavens and ask that you be visited by the three ghosts who can perhaps shine a light on your duty to help pave the way for our children to learn how to live a life filled more with giving rather than taking. Please take that advert down. Try again. You can do better. We want our children to do more than exist as the old Ebenezer did. Building his chain, we want our children to live. Please do not undermine us in this endeavour. Yours sincerely, Catherine Burble Singh. Honestly, anyone would have thought that, like, that, that they like raped Father Christmas. Like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyone would have thought that somehow I don't know. Someone came in with an ISIS flag and said, "No Christmas for anyone this year." But I also find this idea that, like, oh, be sacrificial. It's like, okay. Well, Catherine, why don't you go around telling men that they should be the ones doing Christmas dinner this year? They should be in charge of the turkey. They should be in charge of looking after grandma on Christmas Eve and then making sure that she gets her medications so that she's okay for Christmas Day. You should be the one standing outside a department store waiting for it to open so you can buy little Johnny the car he so desires or whatever it is, all the things that moms spend all of their time doing. But also, the thing that is interesting and relevant to this episode, Catherine Burble Singh is a what? An unmarried, childless career woman who by her own statement says, I go into school early, I get there 6am sometimes, and I often stay late into the evening. There's nothing wrong with that. But again, these women that are so right-wing who go on about that they're conservative and so on and kind of hark back to these traditional family values of women's roles at Christmas time and that they shouldn't begrudge domestic labor, they do not want it for themselves. They know that it's a bag of shit and they do not want it. But by almost saying, well, I don't want it for me, but I'll only be allowed that if I point at the other women and say, oh, you should all be scrubbing the floor the week before Christmas. Even though actually what's incredible is teachers like Catherine get two, three weeks off for Christmas. A lot of people don't get any time off at Christmas apart from Christmas Day and the day after. So if you're a full-time working woman, when do you even have the time to organize Christmas for everyone in your family? Yeah, and it's just also the sentimentality. Like right-wing people love sentimentality. And it makes me think of the James Baldwin quote when he said, sentimentality is the opposite of love. And I think that's absolutely true. It's the kind of aesthetics of like a really shallow, like we all love Christmas, Kay. Like I'm not some horrible communist that's going to come take Christmas away from you and call it bourgeois sentimentality, like calm down. But, you know, these like images of like a white Christmas and all the family around the tree drinking, like drinking, you know, cups of hot cocoa and waiting for the, like, all this is nice, but it's not the most important. It's not more important than like 
women like having mental breakdowns because they have to organize transport for the 20 year old coming back from university and also make sure granny's there from the nursing home with her medications and also make sure that you don't say the wrong political thing at dinner so you don't piss off the crazy uncle and all you know like all the different moving plates like it's not that important it's important it's cool it's nice but it's not the most important thing but they have they value sentimentality so much and I'm like do you have the opportunity to be sentimental about this because you don't actually have to participate in it you don't do you don't have a family like you're a full-blown career woman like you started your own school you know how much work that requires that's an insane thing to have to do I wouldn't know where to start like it's massive I mean it's not I don't work in that sector but you know what I mean and yeah it's just it's it, it it's consistently fascinating to watch women um decry feminism when someone like Candace Owens literally went back to work like this is her second baby she went back to work and was on the daily wire a couple weeks after the baby was born most liberal women i know are like oh no i'll take i'll take a year i'll take a year with it this is not like the standard that we that, that you're like more of a career woman and have more feminist values than the average democrat voter Like, I just, I think it's absolutely madness. And they really, they don't have any awareness or any insight. Like, there's not even a shred of embarrassment that occurs to them. And I don't understand why. And I just think they really do believe in this thing of exception. It's the the only thing I can think of. And a lot of the women who... Um, kind of came up in the alt-right space or the right-wing space. I don't, I'm not sure if I would call, I guess Lauren Southern could be, you know, describes, described it alt-right, a certain, certainly at that point in her career. A lot of them had, like, they tried it out. They did the anti-feminist thing. They went and disappeared and became a professional dishwasher for a man, and they didn't like it. They didn't like it. didn't work out. It didn't work out for them, did it? Um, so I just find it the consistent hypocrisy like and the the original one is phyllis is it phyllis no phyllis chesler is the i'm gonna have to look up the famous anti-feminist woman's name called phyllis anyway but she in the states and catherine mckinnon went to an event with her and um catherine mckinnon was like oh you've worked 20 years um in politics and you're very successful and you've written reports and you've been very consistent and you consistently get um, undermined. You you don't get the promotions that all the men get. And she just didn't have anything to say. I don't understand how they don't have embarrassment or insight into it. I'm just trying to look up the name. Is it Phyllis Shafley? Yeah. Phyllis Shafley. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, that was what was so funny about Candice on stage with a mic in front of thousands of people saying, I don't want a nine to five. I don't know what these feminists mean. I just want to be at home uh, with my baby. And she just literally said, you know, barefoot in the kitchen, baking. It's like somebody, like a woman climbing Mount Everest and then at like the height, like at the, the peak going... I just want to be at home. I just want to be a housewife. It's like, well, why are you on top of Mount Everest then? Or someone, you know, who's an athlete 
who's you know training for the next olympics like watching them go around the track and then stopping when they see a camera and going i just want to be a mom i just i don't understand this feminism thing i just want to be at home with my kids in the kitchen cooking and then carrying on running around the track it's just like so what are you doing like what oh you can like no one minds and the thing that's so funny is i know more women on the communist left who actually want to be housewives and mothers and that's it. But they're the women that will talk about like women in work and labor, right? And the women's rights at work and w- women as workers. That's what that they're like, oh, you, women aren't anything else but workers. Everything that we understand about women should just be seen through the framework of labor and the workplace and capitalism. And those women are often the ones who... I don't know about a majority, but more women in that group want to just be housewives and mothers than in the right wing group, right? On on the, the other side of the political spectrum. They're not workers. They're not. They live off the surplus. Fine, but they're, they live off surplus value, like made by other people. I was reading Richard Wolf today. And um, he was talking about, so the amount that workers produce that is actually required to live. um, And there's the work that's the the, the work, the the work that is required to produce what actually sustains workers' lives. And then everything on top of that is surplus value. And so there are some workers who are workers, but they live off the surplus value of others because they work in HR, they don't produce anything they work in health or education, the state reappropriates someone else's surplus value to pay for them, whatever. So there are workers who live off surplus value. And then there are people who live off surplus value who aren't workers at all. And housewives would fall into that. Right. Okay. But they are doing domestic labor. Yes. Yeah. But I'm saying that their fixation is on work. And they don't want to enter. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah, right-wing, yeah. Right-wing women's fixation is on the home, and they do not want to spend time there. <laughs> like, not at all. It's so funny how, like, that's a, you know they should swap. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Um, but look, you know, I should say I admire Catherine Burble saying in many ways. I think that she's someone who, from my reading of watching her speeches, is incredibly neurotic. She looks very, there are these flashes where she looks incredibly nervous and she kind of doesn't hold her face together and her eyes kind of go to the side and her mouth does a kind of awkward thing that where she's like, okay, I'm I'm holding this, to, I'm trying to hold this together. But for a moment, she doesn't. She's, I think she's someone incredibly neurotic, incredibly anxious. Also probably why she's so thin. And I would also guess might be gay. Very repressed, probably doesn't live with a woman, might when she turns 50 or 60. But I do think that there must be a reason. Yeah, unless she's just that into being a career woman. But it's, you know, for someone who claims those values and then there is not a sniff of a husband or children or whatnot. And and also the naivety. She chimes in on things to do with men and women. And my read of her absolute naivety is that she has never been near a man. So, you know, these debates online that can get a bit silly, but this thing about dating and what you do on your first date and this list was going around of what you 
you know, what women should demand to do on a first day and what they should accept the first activity is or, you know, restaurant or bar or whatever it is. And she quote tweeted it and said, what's wrong with an old fashioned picnic in the park? And I just thought, oh, you've never been on a date with a man. Okay. Or, or not really, like not in a while. Like you're so out of that world, basically, that you don't realize why women are having today to sort through the men who are serious and sort through the men who just want to hook up or a situationship. And the one of the ways you do that is you start as you mean to go on. So you start with a very serious full um, first date, like full dinner out, you know, um, proper dinner at a proper restaurant kind of thing and that that's actually quite a high standard for today most men are not up for that on a first date because they're not that serious about it they just sort of want to see meet you and then see what happens and blur um they don't have a plan necessarily but yeah so she's very very naive when it comes to the sexual and social relations between men and women and yeah my guess would be gay on the down low or just fully repressed because all of her and this is maybe why Jordan Peterson really likes her school and likes her but so much of what she does in her school is getting children to repress themselves and you know I'm not completely against traditionalist education yes I'm very enamored with Soviet construction constructivism but to be honest that's so old-fashioned now it's probably part of traditionalism it's just that it was really revolutionary at the time to think about involving children in the process of their own learning <laughs> whereas today that's kind of like de rigueur like yeah of course you do that um and you know I'm not a liberal and I'm not like a wacky weirdo that thinks children know everything or should teach themselves or or whatever um but it is weird that at her school if you're a child and you answer a question you you put your hand up and you have a go if it's wrong or even if it's right but the sentence wasn't good enough you know answering what happens in a certain Shakespeare play or whatever you get a demerit like it just seems like the most I watched a documentary on it it just seems like the most demoralizing place and on every lunch table there is a teacher who conducts the conversation so whilst that might be good some days of the week, the idea that you don't allow any independence for the children, I think is a very bad thing. And the idea that teachers know everything and they are the ultimate authority, given we know, as we found out with Simon Murch of SWP fame, sometimes teachers rape children. And I think that her school, I'd be very interested to know how she manages safeguarding because it does not seem like the kind of place where children are allowed to come forward with their own thoughts and feelings and that they would feel supported in saying something very negative about a teacher, like that teacher touched me inappropriately. Not that children use that language. Children would have to use whatever language is available, but because it's a difficult thing to say, there would need to be a certain confidence that you would be listened to and heard in a school where you aren't, oh, you aren't allowed to break eye contact with the teacher either. And you have to sit like this. I'm putting my arms up. You you honestly, you have to sit facing the teacher like this for six hours a day and you have to not break eye contact. I mean, this is just insane. I just, I would, I would, I would hate to be at that school now as an adult 
who has very good self-regulation. Yeah, a couple points about uh, education and Soviet education. I was talking to a friend who's a teacher and she was saying to me, oh, early in the Soviet Union, they got rid of things like standardized testing and rote learning and memorizing because they're like, oh, that's bourgeois, we're doing a new thing or whatever. And then they tried that for four or five years and thought, "Mm, yeah, maybe actually probably need some standardized testing. And also standardized testing was introduced in the United States and Europe, particularly the United States, to to manage like anti-Semitism, because basically people would use names, figure out who was Jewish and use, you would basically use your connections, who you knew, who your family was, and you'd write a bit about yourself and they would let you in or not let you in. And this basically wasn't very good for Jewish people. So part of the introduction of standardized testing had to do with getting rid of anti-Semitism, people just getting in on their merits. Um, So I find it interesting when the left is very against standardized testing. There's a very good book of this called The Cult of Smart by Freddie DeBoer, if anyone wants to read it. But yeah, just also about feminism and right-wing women. I think the other thing that enables them to speak in such a ridiculous way about feminists and feminism and, and, oh, I want to be in the kitchen while fully having a very high-powered career, much more high-powered than any other um, liberal woman that I know, is this kind of archetype of the feminist or the specter of the feminist. I was reading this book um, by Linda K. Klein called Pure, and it's about the evangelical purity movement um, and has a lot to say about evangelical culture, which is very interesting. But she talks about in that book how growing up, they all were taught that feminists were like witches. They were like these demon women who like hated children and wore like shoulder pads and stilettos And it was like the worst thing that you could possibly be was be a feminist. And it was used as a pejorative. And every once in a while, I have a tweet that leaves like gender critical land or leaves, um, you know, my kind of section on Twitter and I'll get anti-feminists replying to me. And half of their their replies to me are just just calling me a feminist. And I go, yeah, that's that's true. Right. Uh huh. But it's just because it is such a pejorative. So I think like Candace Owens and Catherine Brisbane Singh and perhaps a previous version of Lauren Southern, I know she's grown and changed quite a lot, were thinking of, well, I can't possibly be a feminist because I'm not a demon. Like, I don't want to rip the heads off children. So even though I have a career, I'm not a feminist. Like, I'm not a witch from hell who's like come to suck the blood of babies. I think that's the other way in which they're able to speak that way with like zero kind of awareness or insight. Yeah. It's interesting. That whole nostalgia thing is so present as well in this idea of barefoot baking in the kitchen and then in Catherine Burble saying stuff about Christmas nostalgia. And it is this idea of kind of harking back, particularly this thing in the UK of because there was a while that, because I'm quite into like horror films or like mystery films. And for a while I started buying mystery books and a lot of them were set in like the 20s, 30s, 40s. I think to get around the advent of technology and how easy it is to like capture a murderer with that. Anyway, they would all be set, or at least like 
a lot of them would be set at festive times because it kind of paints the scene and the context. And a lot of it was based on this idea of an England at the end of the British Empire when it was sort of in decline and really meeting its end at kind of the, you know, just before World War Two, and the sort of Enid Blyton backdrop of children there. And this idea that sort of life was wonderful then in the 20s, 30s, 40s, you know, men were men, women were women, children didn't speak. <laughs> and I'm not quite sure that life existed like that. And I think it was probably pretty bad. You know, I think a lot of men were very poor. I think a lot of women were abused and there wasn't even a language to describe that. I think a lot of children got caned at school. Like all of this is not a time that I would have necessarily liked to have been alive in unless I was upper class or something. And then, you know, you're more maybe allowed to be an unusual woman or something. But all of that is harking back to this, even this idea of kind of decency. Like, what does that mean? To mean, like, to me, that might mean something like politeness, fairness, being an honest dealer with someone. And I just found it so funny that in that letter, she thinks that the Marks and Spencers advert, you know, the women who kind of decide that they don't want to go ahead with being fully responsible for Christmas are undermining public decency and instilling that in children. And I suppose I do understand the idea that they're being selfish because they're not willing to do something for others that others will enjoy and instead being like, I'll do something for myself, maybe. Um, that's not quite how I understand selfishness because it's not to the detriment of other people if you just don't slavishly follow them around serving them. But yeah, it all rests on this idea of a kind of modern or like pre-modern Britain that was much better than now. And given this, and I think it's interesting the letter she talks about, you know, given the state of the country. And it's true, but she doesn't say what that is. She doesn't talk about that people can't afford to heat their homes or that the NHS is crumbling and on its knees. You know, she doesn't mention public sector pay not going up with inflation. Because if she did, I mean, she'd sound like a socialist and she probably wouldn't be welcome at the Conservative Party conference anymore. But instead, you just kind of have to fill in the blanks. What? She was a socialist. Oh, originally, she, yes, she was, yeah. She was in the SWP. Yes. <laughs> and what's her story for how that all changed? I don't know. It's on her Wikipedia page. Okay. Very interesting. Well, look, this is a woman who's always been interested in big picture stuff, right? To do with politics, values, ideology, how we reproduce the next generation um, as a certain model. And it's just so far and away from the kind of uh, lifestyle that she was so cross about, depicted in Marks and Spencer's in the advert, where women reject their their role, essentially. Which it's like, what, so only you're allowed to reject your gender role, Catherine? Yeah, exactly. It's it's yeah it's so um, it's so strange, but I do think like it's a shame because you could, you know, clearly she's a very dynamic woman. I agree with some of the things she says. I have a certain admiration for her. I think she's someone who'd be very interesting to talk to. 
but it's so hard to kind of respect those people when there is that big elephant in the room of you don't mean what you say because we can look at the practice of yourself or even the idea that you go oh but this is just for me like freedom for me not for thee okay so you're just hanging other women out to dry then what because you've accepted that there's a special group of people who are like clever women that know not to get involved in that whole domesticity ruse and the thing that's funny is like I'm not immune to this, right? Like, you know, in the future, if when I have kids, I have so many plans for Christmas. I have like the Christmas board games that I will enforce the playing of. I already know kind of like uh, a friend of mine started doing it when her kids went to bed on Christmas Eve, she'd give them like a Christmas pack to open. It was like new pajamas, Christmassy ones, of course, a hot chocolate drink to have in bed. Um, all these nice other little treats or whatever. And I was like, oh, that's so nice. I'm going to do that for my kids and all these sort of things um, where you make them think that Santa's arrived by like ringing bells outside their bedroom window or whatever. All this sort of stuff is like great. But I think that Catherine doesn't even think, she doesn't even do that. She doesn't want to have kids and do that. Or she would have. Yeah, she, I think there was this thing in well it's true we know that it's true particularly in the victorian era about i forget the statistic it wasn't small but about 10 percent of women were unmarried and they would work in things like education and health and they'd be headmistresses and teachers and nuns and the idea was that and nurses and nuns and so on well the nuns thing goes back further you get what i mean there are these professions that women could do and remain childless and the idea is they were like giving back to the community but there were these like kind of bullshit no nonsense women who did that i think she's trying to frame herself as like the staunch headmistress of the local village who gives herself to uh the community of children basically yes. i think that's right and in a certain respect maybe she's very successful at that she does seem like the kind of person, to be honest, who I think would be very bad at managing conflict. I think that's probably why she ensures that children don't speak to each other in corridors, because I don't think she'd be able to sort out any conflicts. She is someone that looks incredibly, when she's not sort of just putting on a bit of a face, she looks incredibly nervous and anxious at times. And I think that a lot of this will be about her and how actually she can manage to be a headmistress which will involve things like, yeah, ensuring that there's no conflict to mediate, um, not having to deal with anything that is too messy or kind of in the grey areas, right, of like, okay, what happened in that corridor? Apparently there was an incident, da-da-da. Or even just having to think about, you know, that children from troubled backgrounds can't concentrate at school None of that ever came up in her documentary. She talked about how it was an inner city and that a lot of the kids are from deprived areas. But there was nothing about then the social consequences of what that means. So, you know, how you would deal with a parent picking the child up drunk at 3 p.m., how you would deal with a safeguarding issue, how you would deal with kind of disclosure of domestic violence at home by a child. There was nothing really that was about the child's subjectivity other than who they were trying to mould them to be at school. 
And they do this thing at lunchtime where they make you stand up and say what you're that you're grateful for something. And some of the kids did it very well. And sometimes it was just clearly sort of performative. But a lot of the time it was just cringe. Like, and that thing that you learn as a teenager to kind of spot awkwardness, spot cringe, know how you want to be or who you want to be, and that you often feel like you don't want to join in, right? Being a teenager is partly feeling like apart from things, like you don't fit in and that's fine. And then you eventually kind of just make your way. Having such a strict regime doesn't allow for any of that. And I think the person who really feels that they would like a strict structure is Catherine. And so she thinks it's the best thing for them because she finds it difficult, I think, to manage her own feelings and deal with, you know, messy situations. I'm, you know, I am doing a lot of psychoanalyzing here, but she's a very clear case. This is not a woman who hides who she is particularly well in terms of her affect or, you know, what she espouses. The message is very, very clear. And I just sort of wonder, like, oh, yeah, I can't respect the lack of reflection by right-wing women, the lack of honesty, where you tell women they should do certain things whilst you do the opposite. It's not even that I just view them as traitors. I just think you don't mean what you say. And so I can't take you very seriously. Yeah, for me, it's that. And then it's also not having the insight to even hide it or offer a justification or offer an excuse. And I do think it's because they literally think feminists are like demons from hell. And they think, oh, I I have a a bit of a career, but like, I'm not a demon from hell. So clearly they're not talking about me. And it's also functions in that way of like, oh, they're not talking about all women when they say, you know, women should stay in the home and women shouldn't get an education and women should listen to their husbands. They're talking about those demons. It was like demon women who like drink babies' blood or whatever. Um, it was kind of like demonic figure of the witch outside the village or something. I also think it's an appetite for denial. And I always find that on the right, there is such a denial of how things work because they don't believe in subject production in any way. They don't believe that like social conditions would inform, say, your educational obtainment even though it's the number it's the number your socioeconomic background is the number two factor in your success in education and the number one factor is your parents educational success so basically whether you have supportive parents that help you out in education and know what they're doing in that world because they have achieved in it highly because i always used to think this i've always thought it because right wing people don't like to look at the social context of things or make those connections I actually think that they have a huge capacity for denial a total wish to not actually reflect on things as they are let alone themselves and this is why Candace Owens seems to not notice when she goes you know on stage about to give birth saying how much she longs to be at home as if anyone's making her be there you know um, it's so funny. I almost like imagine her like jet skiing next, like, you know, driving around in some waves and then going, I just want to be at home. I just want to be with my baby. Zoom, zooming off into the ocean, you know. 
Yeah, I was just thinking about a TikTok that I made on this topic and the reaction to it and how much people appreciated it. Um, and it's, you know, these women, um, Candace Owens, I think is quite thick. Um, I think that she's, there's like a kind, the other person who does this is Jen Uger, a kind of liberal version of this, where they think that kind of saying things with emotion and anger and rhetoric means that you're making a powerful point. Um, it's like the Jenk Uger school of rhetoric where you just literally like overstate things and are quite extreme and then use kind of emotion and bang the table and so on. She, she kind of does that, but there are women from that world who read, who are thoughtful, who are whatever. And I'm just like, I don't like explain it to me. Like I'm five, like two plus one carry the four. Like, how does this work? If you don't think you don't believe in, I also think there's a real naivety from women about what life was like before feminism for women. I really think they, I think they think that men decided, yeah, women, you can go into education and have rights to own property and all that kind of things. Like in a fit of guilt one morning on a Tuesday for no reason or something like I don't, I really struggle to understand how they get there. Well, right. I mean, until the 1970s or even the 1980s, you couldn't get a mortgage as a woman if you weren't married to a man. So that means Catherine doesn't have her home that I assume she's bought. Candace doesn't have a bank account. Like Lauren doesn't storm into protests with cameras. I know she's made a bit of a U-turn. I don't know if I'd put her so much on the right wing anymore. But yeah, it's... uh... It is kind of, it is an interesting phenomena. I would like to know what they would say if it was put to them, but you don't do any of that, you know, so clearly, evidently, because there's becoming more of them, right? It's like Pearl, who's obviously a ridiculous caricature. I mean, you say that Candace Owens is a bit dim. Pearl is like off the charts, stupid and thick. I should say Candace Owens really got, ran around uh, by Joe Rogan on the on his podcast. That was when I thought, oh, this is not a woman who is very with it in terms of what she's saying. I think Catherine Burble Singh is very clever. I think Lauren Southern seems pretty smart. But like below all of them is Pearl Davis, right? Again, just so funny that she just constantly tells women like you don't look good enough. You should be married by like 22 because you peaked at 21. This is like a woman in her mid to late 20s who is incredibly, um, she's like six foot, doesn't wear makeup, doesn't make an effort, wears ill-fitting clothes, and in no way seems to even have like a boyfriend (laughs) and doesn't seem to be looking for one. Again, it's so funny, this idea. And, you know, people say, to her oh why don't you run for office and she's like oh yeah I might and then they'll say but I thought you didn't believe in women voting she says oh but I would run for office just to stop the vote for women and it's kind of like again like you want to be the ultra thing that you're against but in order then to stop other women having even like a crumb of the big tasty pie that you'll get for yourself yeah it's uh, a very weird psychology 
um, that I, I think I've heard some of them say, oh, I agree with first wave feminism or I agree some of it was good or something. I have, I think I have heard that justification, but then I would just want to say, you know, there were people using kind of your line of argumentation against the reforms that you're apparently in favor of. And then I'm like, well, then do you have an analysis as to like why things went wrong? Because I have that analysis. Like I have criticism. I'm very against third wave feminism. How are you then different than me? Like, have you thought about this for a second ever? Um, But I just, I do think that, especially in like the American South for Republicans, like feminism is just like, you're not even, can't even have like a, a single thought about it. It's just like fully not allowed. Well, I think that would partly be around the abortion issue. And I think that what we see with right-wing women of this thing of throwing women under the bus whilst you get to drive the bus and get paid a million dollars to drive the bus is, I guess, an extreme version of women's intra-competition. Yeah, it's interesting. It's always a fun thing to point out. Let the men speak if you feel so strongly about this. Why do you have a podcast? in a high-powered media career. Like, what's going on? Why have a Twitter account? Yeah, yeah. Most women don't. Most women aren't political. Most apolitical women spend uh, most of their time cooking, cleaning, taking care of um, children, their husbands, the elderly. Most Democrat, most Democrat voters who are women, that's what they're doing. Mm. Uh, what, what's, What's going on? I think as well, the exceptionalism thing might play into it, whereby because they believe, because they're in a world that says that women should stay at home, they think I will have less competition when I don't do that. And when I strike out on my own and I start to push these politics, I also think that they they assume that there'll be less competition, whereas actually the opposite is true. There'd be less competition on the left. The left is a lot less willing to have women commentators. Not at all. Unless, yeah, not at all. Unless you have the sponsorship of a man. So unless yeah. you're in a relationship with a man who generally has like a higher position in a political party or a trade union, or, or or sometimes you just have to like sleep with that man for a while and let him know that he can sleep with you at any time, but don't fall out with him. So like... It's like it's broken off, but you're still on really good terms. You're still available to him. I remember in the SWP, that guy, Martin Smith, who is Comrade Delta, who sexually abused two teenage girls, he had slept with every woman on the CC apart from one woman who was gay. Yeah. It was like, well, there's nothing we can do about that. She's gay, but, you know, it's good to have a token gay on the central committee. And like all of those streamer left wing streamer bros who have like kind of attractive women with left wing ideas on their streams or on their podcasts or on their platforms, they they've slept with those women or sexted those women. Like I happen to know this. All yeah. of them, yeah. All of them. It's like prostitution. It's like a kind of weird intellectual prostitution. <laughs> well, they tend to have cultivated like a harem of those women. And they've slept yeah. with them all. Yeah, yeah. And it's the thing is, it's it, it it's not extraordinary because so many industries work that way. 
that I'm not surprised that left-wing men also do sexual favors for access, basically. Yeah, this is like the standard in a lot of industries, for sure. But I think there's also a particular culture of it on the left because the left has this free love, free whatever, like it's all great. Sex is actually not a big deal. There's no differences between men and women. Yeah, it's sexual liberalism and they don't believe there's such a thing as sexual exploitation. So if you offered a woman a job, but you were like, but it was it was implied that it was contingent on, say, having sex with that you got to have sex with her, they wouldn't think that was an issue, any other issue than a boss-worker relationship anyway. No, they wouldn't. And they think, like, literally their their ideology is the more sex a woman has, the more liberated she is. They think they're doing something, like, progressive. Well, I'd like to see what Catherine Burblesing had to say to those men. <laughs> yes, she'd really put them in her spot, you know. You should put them in the, their place. Anyway, thank you for listening to this episode on right-wing women and how they are particularly gender non-conforming. Yes. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. Bye-bye. Bye.